This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in your podcast app. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the UCSF Osher Mini Medical School Series. Um, this is a series that is near and dear to my heart. It's been a long part of uh, the UCSF programming, and it's, the idea is really to bring cutting-edge science and health education to the public. My name is Dr. Kavitha Kacholia Mishra. I am a professor and director of the Ocular Tumor Radiation Program at UCSF. I am faculty in integrative oncology at the Osher Center for Integrative Health. Um, can't believe it, but I've been at UCSF for about 25 years and before that studied at Harvard College and School of Public Health. I am really, really thrilled to have you all joining us today. And I hope that this is a um, series that is really meaningful and informative the series uh, that you're about to impart on with us is called Transforming Cancer Care with Integrative Oncology, and I am the course chair. Um, I have no disclosures. So the, um, the talks that you're going to be hearing over the next six weeks are um, starting today, kind of a bird's eye view of integrative oncology. Um, we're calling it Integrative Oncology 101. And Kathleen Kavanaugh, who I'll be introducing in just a second, will be joining me uh, as we discuss the landscape from a really um, kind of a bird's eye view. And over these next six weeks, we will be able to get into each of these areas into more depth. And so next week, we'll be talking about exercise and cancer with a wonderful colleague, uh, Dr. Marshall. Uh, the week after that, nutrition and cancer with Dr. Abrams, who is um, a world expert in that field. Uh, integrative palliative care with Dr. Bell, um, and then we'll be spending some time with our psycho-oncologist colleagues uh, looking at caring for the mind, body, and spirit um, with Dr. Cohen and Dr. Weir Jamora, and then we're going to round it out with a panel discussion uh, with just a really fabulous group. Dr. Dhruva is uh, an Ayurvedic medicine doc and a medical oncologist at UCSF. Dr. Ashby is an acupuncturist um, doing some really neat work in group acupuncture at UC. Uh, Dr. Atreya um, is a wonderful GI oncologist. She and I do some work in mind-body therapy, especially for patients who are going through treatment. And Dr. Fogg, who is a, a neuroradiation oncologist doing some fantastic work with exercise oncology um, for her neuro uh, patients. So watch out for these as we go along and know that we'll have a chance to get into detail uh, with each of these wonderful speakers as we go along. Uh, learning objectives for the course as a whole. One of the main objectives of this course as we go over the six weeks is to understand how we think about integrative oncology now and really the paradigm shift to include a very holistic integrative approach. Um, and the strategies that we're going to be talking about are strategies to reduce cancer risk and support cancer treatment. Next, we want to describe how physical activity and nutrition have benefit for symptoms, side effects, cancer risk, and survival. This is really important. Uh, physical activity and nutrition are core principles in integrative oncology. So we'll spend a decent amount of time on these subjects today, as well as the next handful of weeks. I'm hoping that you will also gain some specific mind-body skills, including symptom, pain, stress management, mindfulness practices, cognitive strategies, and sleep hygiene. 
And finally, we will make sure both through the slides, which will be available to you, um, as well as the discussions to bring to you resources that we feel are strong and um, well-researched places for you to understand more about how to care for your whole self. So things on nutrition, exercise, symptom management, natural products, herb supplements, uh, mind-body medicine, acupuncture, psycho-oncology resources, and other healing approaches. Okay, so let's dive into today's material. Um, today, Kathleen and I will be discussing, like I said, a bird's eye view, integration, uh, integrative oncology 101, empowering us to reduce risk, support treatment, and promote health. Kathleen, I've already introduced myself. Kathleen, um, who is my co-moderator, uh, is a fantastic mentor, colleague, friend. Um, she's a nurse practitioner started her career on the East Coast, and we were able to bring her to the West Coast, where she attended graduate school at UCSF. She's been working at UCSF's Helen Diller Comprehensive Cancer Center for many, many years in various roles. And she completed the Andrew Weil Fellowship uh, in Arizona in Integrative Medicine. And she's been working at the Osher Center for the past five years. She is a fantastic resource, and I'm really excited to have her join us um, for that Q&A section. So let's start with the basics. Cancer. Cancer is a disease that's caused by an uncontrolled division of abnormal cells in a particular part of the body. Sometimes it stays local and sometimes it travels elsewhere. Now, the trends in 2022 are that almost uh, actually more than one in three adults in the U.S. will be diagnosed with cancer in their lifetime. And that is a major impact on our society, on our lives. The other side of that is we have had many advances in treatment. We have had advances in early detection. And that has resulted in more cancer survivors. And so this graph that you see on the side is looking sort of back 50 years and looking forward 20 years and saying we're going to be increasing in terms of the number of survivors over time. And so what does that mean for the integrative oncologist? Well, what it means is that on the one side, we really want to reduce the risk of developing cancer. So if there are things that we can do to help our bodies stay healthy um, and continue to serve us, that's what we want to be um, doing in terms of nutrition and exercise and other techniques. And we'll talk about that today. So number one, a core principle of integrative oncology is reducing the risk of developing cancers where possible. The other core principle of integrative oncology is how do we support treatment as we're going through cancer treatment if we are diagnosed? And how do we ultimately promote health in survivorship? As we come out of treatment during and after, how can we use integrative approaches to help our bodies and minds heal? So what is integrative oncology ultimately? There are many, many definitions and it's sort of taken some different turns over the years. This definition has come to um, be a, a favored in the field and I'll, I'm gonna read it to you, which is integrative oncology is a patient-centered, evidence-informed field of cancer care that utilizes mind and body practices, natural products, and or lifestyle modifications from different traditions alongside conventional cancer treatments. Integrative oncology aims to optimize health, 
quality of life, and clinical outcomes across the cancer care continuum, and to empower people to prevent cancer and to become active participants before, during, and beyond cancer treatment. Now, there are a lot of details in those definitions, and we're going to pick out a few of the keys. One thing that I just want to talk about is, uh, as we've come along from this definition, which was produced in the literature around 2017, we've started to steer away from using the word prevent because it is really hard to prevent something. There are so many factors that go into cancers developing, um, environmental factors, uh, genetic factors, et cetera, that, that it is hard to prevent, yet we can potentially risk reduce. And so now what we tend to say is reduce cancer risk versus prevent it fully. And part of that is um, there can also be a sense of guilt almost when you say, hey, I didn't prevent this for myself. That's actually not true. Um, it's really about risk reduction as we go through this together. So a couple of keys from those definitions. One is we are looking at the whole person. In integrative oncology, we're working with the whole team, your whole team of healthcare providers, and we're thinking about the whole person framework. So this is from the National Center for Complementary and Integrative Health, looking at the individual factors. So obviously the biology, the patient, the tumor, et cetera, but also looking at behavioral factors, social factors, environmental factors. And then behind the individual, we realize there are other factors from the family, community, and from the population at large that impact where we are on the scale of health to disease. And so that's really one of the keys, whole person framework. The second key is integrating with the healthcare team. And so while the healthcare team might be working on the surgical aspects, the radiation aspects, the uh, chemotherapy, immunotherapy, uh, medical oncology aspects, the integrative oncologist works with all of those um, folks and everyone else that's on a cancer team uh, to also think about what may be involved in terms of psychological stresses, nutritional stresses, diet, and physical stresses or lifestyle choices in terms of physical activity and exercise. A third key to that definition is that this is evidence-informed, and so we are really trying to find safe and rational ways to uh, hole out the experience for the patient. And the evidence is based on studies like clinical trials, randomized trials like you would have in any other um, area of medicine. It may be looking at organ systems or cells and at the molecular looking at uh, level, looking at what's happening um, in our bodies, within our organs and beyond um, to figure out how do these um, integrated modalities help us? And then how do we integrate those modalities into our uh, lives during, before and after treatment? Another uh, just sort of take on what are we thinking about when we talk about integrative oncology and what's the difference between alternative medicine or complementary medicine? Well, integrative oncology is now the term that's used because it's really about that collaborative work with the oncology healthcare team. Alternative uh, medicine was uh, is a bit out of favor in terms of the idea that it's not instead of, it's not an alternate to conventional medicine. It's really about working with the conventional modalities. Um, and also complementary medicine has sometimes a feeling of being outside uh, of the conventional treatment. And the idea is to really be a part of the course for a patient. 
Interestingly, about 80% of folks utilize uh, integrative oncology modalities um, based on surveys, but only about 15 to 50% actually discuss it with their oncology team. And so um, one of the important things that comes out of this is that we must communicate both on the healthcare side, asking about what a patient may be interested on an integrative oncology side, and then for patients and their caregivers to feel comfortable um, releasing that information to their teams. And we know that when healthcare providers ask the question, they get that answer much more frequently. Um, so the, in the end, make sure that we all communicate with each other. Integrative oncology has really grown over the years. And so this was a nice study done between Harvard and um, Memorial Sloan Kettering and um, some uh, colleagues in China. And it looked at what is the growth of integrative oncology. And you can see that long list on your screen. There are a number of modalities which we'll be covering over the next um, hour. And there's been a real increase at comprehensive cancer centers to approach in oncology in this integrative way. So what are the goals of integrative oncology? Integrating care for the whole person, engaging the mind, body, spirit community, activating the body's innate healing, considering natural, less invasive, non-pharmacological interventions when appropriate, focusing on health promotion, and increasing empowerment. And I don't say that last one lightly because I think that is a really important piece of this. I think about a patient who shared with me that, hey, as I'm going through this cancer treatment, everything is just being done to me. And when she came in to understand some of the integrative oncology approaches, she started to feel that she could actually do things for herself, with herself, by herself. Um, and that was really empowering, that sort of sense of a bit of control in what can be a really difficult journey. So how does integrative oncology help very specifically? It can reduce cancer risk, both developing cancer in the first place and the recurrence. And I'm gonna show you some of that data. It can reduce cancer symptoms. It can support treatment and lessen side effects. It can optimize health and survivorship, and it can strengthen end-of-life care. And one of my mentors, um, and, and he got it from uh, elsewhere, uh, passed down, which is the idea that healing is always possible, even when curing may not be possible. And ultimately, when I think about these different goals and how does integrative oncology work, there is the bucket of things that help us live stronger, healthier, better lives. And then there's the bucket that lets us live longer. And so as we go through, you can think about it in those two buckets of what are the kinds of things that are helping us live um, a higher quality of life and then what may actually be increasing our survival. This is the bird's eye view of integrative oncology. So just take a moment to kind of take all of that in it's going to feel like um, a lot today. We will explore, like I said, each one of these over the course of the six weeks. So today we'll kind of peck at each one of these, knowing that we'll get um, a much more full description as we go along. Nutrition and physical activity are the first two on the list because those are really core concepts in integrative oncology and both of which have shown to actually help us live longer. 
Um, and I'm going to sh share some of that uh, research with you. Mind-body medicine, also really important. All of these are really important. Mind-body medicine is a catch-all term that umbrellas many different types of therapies. Then we have whole systems like traditional Chinese or traditional East Asian medicine, um, Ayurveda, which is a medicine from uh, uh, India, South Asia, uh, energy and manual or massage therapy. Then going to the second line, um, nature medicine, there's a whole uh, set of research around what it is to be in nature and what that does for us in our mind and body. Screening and smoking cessation. This is a really important one because I do think screening and detecting these earlier where we can usually treat them um, better is, is important. So I'm going to go through some of that in detail so that you know what you may be up for depending on your age and gender. Herbs and supplements, obviously that is usually a hot item that people are really interested in. We'll spend a whole lot of time talking about that in our third session uh, with Dr. Abrams. And then finally, psycho-oncology, symptom management, pain management, and sleep clinic. So all of these fall into what we call integrative oncology, and many of these involve working with uh, various colleagues of various training. So let's dive into nutrition first. This is from the American Institute for Cancer Research, an excellent group. Um, you can access them online uh, at the website down here, which you'll all have access to uh, after this is done. And um, every year they put out a sort of top 10 list. What are the top 10 um, things that we should be doing to, they call it cancer prevention, again, cancer risk reduction. And so let's just look over these. Again, we'll go over each of these in detail over the course of the six weeks. Um, many of these are around nutrition. And so the first one is eat a diet rich in whole grains, vegetables, fruits, and beans. Next, limit the consumption of fast foods and other processed foods high in fats, starches, or sugars. Number three, limit the consumption of red and processed meat. Number four, be a healthy weight. Number five, be physically active. Number six, limit consumption of sugar-sweetened drinks and limit alcohol consumption. Now, Traditionally, we've sort of, many of these groups have said, well, maybe you can have a glass or two of alcohol, that's fine. Um, and I'm going to come to the idea of moderation because I do think it's really important to know that it's hard to live by all of these tenants. However, the latest recommendations from this past year actually do change the alcohol um, recommendations to limiting it as much as possible because um, and what they say is for cancer prevention, it's best to not drink alcohol. Um, and so the data is relatively clear that any amount of alcohol can increase our risk. Finally, do not use supplements for cancer prevention. And the idea there is in the fine print, aim to meet nutritional needs through diet. Um, supplements, we'll talk about this, but supplements are, um, there are a lot of things to think about, and this is an area that you definitely want to speak to your healthcare team in terms of the pros and cons, depending on your situation 
uh, generally, if we can achieve through diet our nutritional needs, um, that is what's considered ideal. And then finally, in the small print on the bottom, it says not smoking and avoiding other exposure to tobacco and excess sun are also important in reducing cancer risk. So does nutrition matter and why? So nutrition matters. And you can see based on those 10 um, rules of the road that the AICR puts out that many of them are around nutrition. And we know that from our research and from the data that nutrition matters. So if there's anything that you leave with today, one of those will be nutrition matters. Um, obesity is a leading risk factor for cancer. And so um, you can see from this chart that overweight and obesity is associated with 13, at least 13 different types of cancers. Um, those are listed on that picture. 40% of all cancers are thought to be diagnosed, sorry, are thought to be related to obesity. And obesity is basically considered to be a chronic inflammatory state that predisposes us to cancer. Now, for the folks in the audience that like to look at bar graphs, this is for you, the folks that uh, like to just look at the big picture. The big picture of this slide is nutrition matters. A healthy diet and lifestyle have been associated with a significantly lower risk of the cancer coming back and a significantly lower risk of death due to cancer and death due to any cause. So what does that mean? Nutrition helps us live stronger and live longer. Um, this was a study that just came out this year, 2022, um, a well done study that looked at uh, folks from a clinical trial about um, more than a thousand patients. This particular study, the folks had colorectal cancer, but there are many studies now uh, in different cancer types that show something similar. And so what they did is they put folks uh, within the study into three buckets. The study itself was looking at adjuvant chemotherapy, but they also went in and looked at, hey, by the way, does diet matter also? And so they put folks into three buckets, the first bucket being folks on the trial that had good risk features, meaning they were um, very unlikely to have problems with the cancer coming back, medium risk or average risk bucket, where people had some medium risk of the cancer coming back and a, quote, poor risk or high risk bucket where those patients had a high risk of the cancer coming back. And um, those risk factors were based on the patient data and the tumor data. What was the size of the tumor? Where was it located? Were there lymph nodes involved? Uh, what was the age of the patient? Things like that. So th those were the three buckets, and that's what you see here, good risk, average risk, and poor risk. Then they said within each of those buckets, sort of uh, accommodating for all those other factors, was there a difference that diet made? So then they said, okay, the, the blue bar is everybody. And then they said the folks in the red bar who have a quote, favorable diet or the most favored diet. And, the, and that was based on a lot of the rules that we just talked about around processed foods and you know eating white refined grains versus whole grains, eating vegetables and fruits, uh, et cetera. So in the red bar were the folks that were eating a favorable diet. And then in the green bar are the folks that were eating 
a lesser favored diet, meaning they weren't following a lot of those recommendations. And guess what? In each of those buckets, we found that there was a difference in survival and in the cancer coming back. And so the green arrows point to the fact that there was lower um, survival due to the cancer coming back and due to other causes, likely cardiovascular reasons. Um, so folks did not do well as well uh, across the board, whether they were in the good risk bucket, medium or poor risk bucket, based on their tumor and based on their other factors, um, if their diet was poor. So the, the big picture, again, to kind of bring, bring us out of the science of it is nutrition matters. Diet and lifestyle really do matter in terms of cancer recurrence and potentially death due to cancer or other factors. And so um, in the end, this really showed that both diet before, you know, in terms of reducing risk is important, but also diet during and after treatment is important because actually these surveys were done during their adjuvant chemotherapy and after. Um, so nutrition matters all the way along the cancer care continuum. Uh, that's also been shown for exercise, which we'll talk about in a, in a bit. Um, obesity is, so the question that you may be asking is, hey, okay, nutrition matters, why? And so obesity is related to a number of different parts of the cancer, what we call cancer hallmarks, or why these cells are able to divide and grow and replicate and, and get elsewhere in the body. And so not going through the details of the slide, but just knowing that obesity shows up in a bunch of these boxes because it tends to trigger and allow the cancer to do more of what it wants to do. Another reason um, and potentially related reason of why does nutrition matter is we suspect the microbiome. Uh, and for those of you who have heard of the microbiome, it's sort of the new thing that's been talked about for the you know, last five, 10 years, especially um, for those of you who haven't heard much about the microbiome, the microbiome, we all have it. It lives within us and on us. And it is literally trillions of microorganisms thousands of different species of bacteria, fungi, parasites, viruses that live with us, coexist with us. And they are defined actually by our DNA, but also they are affected by environmental factors and by our diet. And that is a real key. So our diet, even, as, uh, even if we have a certain diet, if we can change it, adjust it, we can actually affect our microbiome potentially um, over even short, amount, short amounts of time. And we think that imbalances uh, in the microbial uh, ecology are implicated in the development of certain cancers. And interestingly, we also think that the microbiome may be related to our response to certain treatments. Um, that is an active area of research now. So fine, you say, doc, nutrition matters. Okay, I see that there are some reasons why it might matter. So what should I do? Well, the picture I have here is of a bunch of cruciferous vegetables, which um, I try to include in my diet. And it's, I know, really hard to think about all these things. And so if you can take one nugget out of this is to say, hey, can I add one of these vegetables into my diet um, at some regular basis and start there and then grow from there? Um, the idea is to really have a diet that is plant-based, 
anti-inflammatory or anti-cancer based in whole foods, unprocessed, based in vegetables, fruits, whole grains, beans, like we talked about in that original um, uh, sort of top 10 list. And ideally, we like to favor the brightly colored um, vegetables and fruits and the strongly flavored ones. They tend to have even more phytochemicals or chemicals that come from plants that help us do better and help us um, uh, deal with cancers or prevent cancers, uh, reduce our risk for them. And phytochemicals, those chemicals and plants that help us are generally better absorbed when we eat it from food than when we try to take it from supplements. And I'm gonna come back to this idea over the course of these six weeks, but moderation 80-20 is a bit of a mantra for me because it is really hard as we go through this hour and through these six weeks to say, wow, there are so many things to think about. I want you to today leave with one thing that you can potentially pick up one nugget that you say, yes, I think I can do that in my life. And keep in mind 80-20 where most of the time, most of us can sort of do things 80% of the time, but 20% of the time we need to give ourselves that break or let us let, you know, let myself have that apple pie or let myself um, not do exercise or whatever that is. But moderation helps us to keep to some of these um, rules of the road for the long term. So this is a few pictures that will, again, over the course of the six weeks, dive into more. But this is the American called the new American plate. And you've got some brightly colored vegetables, whole grains, and a bit of uh, lean meat here. And this is an anti-inflammatory pyramid from Dr. Andrew uh, Weil um, out of Arizona. And he's done a really nice job to say, hey, what are the things that are reducing inflammation in our body? And so things like vegetables and fruits are really at the base of that anti-inflammatory pyramid. We'll spend more time on this pyramid as well. Um, but just to point out a couple of things, cooked Asian mushrooms, things like shiitake, enoki, maitake, things that you can find at many grocery stores, tend to be very high in nutrients that are good for us, um, helpful for our immune systems. And herbs and spices, things like garlic, ginger, turmeric, cinnamon, really helpful in terms of anti-inflammatory. Um, and also green tea, white tea, oolong tea. And just to close out the nutrition discussion, the Environmental Working Group every year puts out a wonderful group that they call the Dirty Dozen, and it is the top 12 um, fruits and vegetables uh, produce that have the highest levels of pesticides. And the reason why I like to bring this up is because if um, you are picking and choosing in terms of where you put your resources, this top 12 list is really the, the ones where you want to try to, um, if you can, buy from a farmer's market or buy organic, if that's um, something that uh, is accessible to you, because they tend to have high levels of pesticides, or at least to really wash them well um, before eating and serving. This is a list of nutritional resources. But ideally, I would love for you to talk with nutritionists and oncology consults for your particular situation. There's obviously a lot of online resources. The American Institute for Cancer Research is a good one. That's the one that had that top 10 list that we started with. And they partner with the World Cancer Research Fund. 
The American Cancer Society has wonderful resources. And then UCSF has a number of resources on the OSHA page for nutrition. So we've talked through nutrition. Now let's move into physical activity. So exercise matters. You're going to get a theme here. So nutrition matters, exercise matters. Um, the folks here look awfully happy. I can't say that I always look like that when I'm exercising, and um, uh, but it is good for us and it does matter. Um, it lowers the risk of us developing cancers, things like the ones listed here. It reduces symptoms and treatment side effects, things like fatigue, quality of life, physical functioning, anxiety, depression, lymphedema, bone health, and sleep. These are all things that can come up either from the cancer itself or from treatment. And exercise, we know from a vast amount of research, can help with all of these things. It can lower the recurrence risk. So not only does it lower the risk of us developing cancers, it can actually lower the risk of it coming back if we are diagnosed with cancer. And it helps us live longer. So again, live stronger, live longer. Exercise really matters on both of those fronts. And it also helps on other things like preventing us from having falls, uh, cardiovascular fitness, self-esteem, strength, balance, body composition. This is again for the folks who like um, the data and who like to look at graphs. If you're a big picture person, the big picture is exercise matters. Before a cancer diagnosis, during a cancer diagnosis, and after a cancer diagnosis. Now, I say that with the caveat that it has to be within reason. If one is experiencing symptoms from their cancer treatment, if there is fatigue or if there is peripheral neuropathy where you can't feel your fingers as well, if, you if you're having symptoms or treatment effects, you have, I want you to talk to your team and to an exercise counselor or someone who's knowledgeable about how to adjust your exercise routine because obviously I want you to be listening to your uh, body. But if exercise is something that is allowable for you in your situation, it can matter. Um, so this graph is from a paper that looked at exercise with radiation therapy. The last few that we looked at were with chemotherapy. So this is with radiation therapy, and this is based on randomized controlled trials, which is sort of the um, gold standard of what we look at in medicine. And each one of these boxes is a, um, is a trial. And so this was a review that looked at all the good trials that were out there looking at exercise and radiation. And um, these trials had a group where they had the folks in the radiation program having also an exercise routine that they were following. And then that was compared to a group that was just getting the radiation for the most part. And sometimes there were uh, maybe a relaxation or other technique that they were teaching, uh, depending on the study. And the end result was that if you look at um, this dark black line that goes down the center, Everything on the right of that includes studies that showed that, yes, the outcomes improved when we exercised while we were getting radiation therapy. A lot of these studies were done with breast cancer patients, all the pink ones. Some were in prostate cancer patients and others in head and neck and other tumors as well. On the left side, those studies were generally studies that either showed, mostly that showed no statistical change. Um, 
And so that doesn't necessarily mean that it was bad for the patients. It's just that the study doesn't actually, didn't actually show a statistical difference. Um, but the outcome here is very consistent with other data that shows that exercise matters before, during, and after treatment. And that's why it's part of that top 10 list. Exercise matters. And again, if you're a big picture person, it matters what you've been doing up to the cancer diagnosis, during the cancer diagnosis, and it also matters after the cancer diagnosis. So this was a really interesting study done that looked at, hey, what if I wasn't exercising and then I got this diagnosis and then I started to exercise? Am I still getting benefit? And so this was a group of about 500 nurses who were actually surveyed. And um, they asked the question of, hey, what was your exercise before and what was your exercise after diagnosis? And for the nurses who said that their exercise increased, those folks did better. Uh, this looked at survival. And so, so those patients who actually increased their activity level lived longer. Um, and you can see that both due to the cancer and due to all causes, whether it was cardiovascular or other causes of uh, mortality. But the idea is that whatever we have been doing up till today, we can still make an impact on our body's health and our mind's health by making a choice tomorrow. And again, this kind of is to beat that point home, which is exercise matters. And this study also literally just came out a month ago, um, a really well done study looking at you know, more than 1500 patients um, nationally, all kinds of cancers. And the key here was prolonged sitting more than six to eight hours a day and a lack of activity, meaning less than 150 minutes a week was associated with higher risk of death from all causes, including cancer. And that's this green arrow pointing to the highest little diamond here, which is showing us the highest risk of mortality or, or having problems with the cancer. And um, that was for the folks who were, again, sitting more than six to eight hours a day and uh, exercising less than 150 minutes a week. That number is going to be important, 150 minutes a week. And that's, that is part of the recommendations now from multiple national organizations looking at not just this, but multiple other studies so what does that come uh, to mean for you? That means about somewhere around 30 minutes um, a day, about five days a week, for example. So 150 minutes a week. So again, how much should I move? I want to drive this home for you. Safe, sustainable, and personalized plans for exercise are really important. So more than the number, I want to make sure that uh, whatever the exercise program is for you, uh, is something that makes sense for you, your body, where you're at. And ideally that is with a trained professional who can help you think about that. That can include exercise counselors, trainers, physical therapists, um, occupational therapists, rehab folks. There are yoga, tai chi, qigong, dance, you know, all kinds of teachers, professionals in different fields that can help folks um, going through the cancer journey um, or helping support someone going through the cancer journey. Uh, to understand how exercise may fit into your life. 
aerobic exercise, again, that magic number, 150 minutes a week. It's, it's not so much a magic number, but it is a number that has been studied consistently across many research um, clinical trials. And so it is something that we try to achieve when we can, when our body allows it to. Again, not over the idea that you have to be at one with where your body's at, especially when you're going through active cancer treatment. Now, uh, if you're doing vigorous activity, that number comes down to about half of it or about 75 minutes a week. Strength training also is important, and that usually is recommended about twice a week. So what does it mean, moderate activity versus vigorous activity? Well, light intensity activity is an activity where your breathing is pretty easy and it doesn't so much um, cause trouble. You could even sing while you're doing some of these light activity things. Moderate intensity activities are things where the movement is somewhat affecting your breath, where you can still talk, but maybe you can't sing. Um, so things like brisk walking, um, uh, you know, types of yoga, light gardening, um, water aerobics, things like that. And then the third, um, the sort of other part of activity is vigorous activity. And that is things that may cause... Um, uh, more trouble to your breathing uh, so that it's actually harder to talk when you're breathing. So that would be um, wa race walking, biking fast, heavy gardening, things like that. Again, 150 minutes of moderate activity is kind of the, the um, recommendation for many resources and 75 minutes of vigorous activity weekly, if your body allows. This is a wonderful resource, the American College of Sports Medicine. Um, exercise is medicine, and you can look online. They've got a lot of really good specific details that patients and their families can use to help, uh, help them through this. Now, a few tips to help, to help build these healthy habits, which can be really hard to build. These are uh, lifelong pursuits, and so you have to develop strategies to be able to uh, start and actually maintain um, these habits. One thing that can really help is to set short-term goals to achieve those long-term goals. And then you want to tailor your plan depending on what are your needs, your barriers, who is there to support you, what kind of classes or apps you may like or um, resonate with you. Several short so, short se sessions, sorry, that was a tongue twister, um, may work better than one long session. Um, and give yourself credit for those small steps as you go towards your goals and follow up with your uh, healthcare providers. And these are some of the resources that we just chatted about. Now we're gonna move into uh, sort of an umbrella of mind-body, whole systems, and nature medicine. We'll go through these last handful fairly quickly. Again, this is a preview of bird's eye view. So what is mind-body medicine? This is a particular interest of mine. Um, it is a group, an umbrella of many, many practices, and it really brings together mind, body, behavior to promote our health and well-being. It can include things like meditations. There are a bunch listed here. Um, it can include movement or energy-based therapies, things like Qigong, Tai Chi, yoga, um, I'll just mention the acronyms in the one prior. MDSR is mindfulness-based stress reduction, and MBCR is mindfulness-based cancer recovery. 
And those are specific courses, usually about eight weeks. Once a week, we offer them at UCSF. They are also offered elsewhere all across the nation. And they've been studied quite extensively in healthcare, particularly. And so we know that these practices can really help us uh, in various cancer symptoms and um, dealing with treatment side effects. Other relaxation techniques, things like progressive muscle relaxation, where we progressively relax different muscles in our body and guided imagery. In addition, there are things like nature medicine, spending time out in nature, dance therapy, art, writing, music, biofeedback, hypnosis, support groups. So this umbrella is really wide and I put it there just so that you've heard it once and we'll get a chance to talk about it more. Um, these are some of the things that we just talked about. So here on the left, she's doing you know, Tai Chi out in nature. Um, uh, something that I like to think about in the middle here is when we are waiting for a scan or when we are waiting for our physician to come see us uh, or our healthcare providers, um, that may be a moment where we can take a moment, a minute to just focus on our breath or focus on our body and kind of um, bring down some of the natural stresses that can arise in us when we're in those situations. Obviously, listening to apps and online resources really common, doing it with others, doing it with kids, um, a really healthy habit to start early in life. Um, and we have a number of classes at UCSF and obviously tons of resources both online and um, through various healthcare providers to be able to do group work to get into some of this mind-body space. And so how does mind-body medicine help in the cancer journey? Where does it fit in? Well, we know from, again, trials that have looked at patients who have had mind-body training and patients who have not, and where has it helped? We know that physical symptoms can be helped in terms of sleep, fatigue, pain, nausea. We know that psychosocial symptoms can be helped, things like uh, stress, depression, anxiety, fear of cancer recurrence, all of these that can come up during the cancer journey. Um, it can also help on cognitive or existential types of questions, things um, that can help us become more aware of where we are at. Um, bring more self-compassion, compassion both inward to ourselves and outward, gratitude, reflection, insight, things that, uh, questions that can come up, especially during a cancer journey. And, and these techniques may help us bring some of that wisdom out from within us. Um, and then also we know that it can help in survivorship and end-of-life care. This was, again, a really nice study just done recently looking at the National Comprehensive Cancer Network. This is the NCCN um, guidelines, which serve all physicians across the world, not just the US. And these guidelines tell us based on the best data out there, randomized control trials, meta-analyses, systematic reviews, all the stuff that is the gold standard of research. Based on that, what do we know uh, without question really um, can help us. And so where you see the blanks, it doesn't mean that that doesn't help. It just means that the data maybe isn't quite there yet. Um, but you see a lot of X's. And the idea is that many of these mind-body therapies like acupuncture, which 
is also a whole other system, but sometimes gets put into mind-body therapy. Massage, meditation, yoga, music, exercise, nutrition, which we talked about, all of these have a space and have been shown in the research to help with pain, fatigue, sleep issues, mood issues, cognitive or brain fog, night sweats, sexual dysfunction, nausea, vomiting, anorexia. And not that every one of those helps for every one of those symptoms. There's quite a bit of overlap, but we know from various studies that many of these help for many of these symptoms. And there are a number of reasons why mind-body medicine may be helping, and it can be uh, it may be because it is helping us with our stress response. Um, there are some really interesting studies looking at what happens with our immune system, what happens with our telomeres. These are the uh, ends of our chromosomes that tend to unravel over time. And, and um, there are, there's some data to show that meditation may actually help kind of keep that um, intact better. There is a number of uh, study around MRI and looking at the brain and what happens when we do some of these mind-body therapies. And there are other studies that look at epigenetics and what happens, uh, how are we actually controlling what goes on and off in our DNA when we do these mind-body practices. So a lot of interesting work. Again, we'll look at some of these over the course of the six weeks. ASCO, the American Society for Clinical Oncology and the Society for Integrative Oncology, really important resources for us as physicians and for patients um, in the integrative space. Uh, these groups have been doing some work uh, looking at guidelines and, and continuing to do quite a bit of work actually over the next five or 10 years to put guidelines in place for us. And we know that in breast cancer, for example, the guidelines certainly include music therapy, meditation, stress management, yoga, for things like anxiety, stress, depression, mood disorders, quality of life. Uh, also very specifically in these guidelines, acupressure and acupuncture are recommended for reducing chemotherapy-induced nausea and vomiting. And this, uh, these are some resources that you'll have, and many of these are actually online um, mindfulness or meditation resources that you can tap into and see which ones may resonate for you. Acupuncture is, um, uh, there is a whole study of traditional Chinese medicine, TS TCM, or traditional East Asian medicine. Acupuncture is a mainstay of that, and it's um, sterile thin needles, which you see pictured here, and they're applied to specific body points and um, manipulated such that it is thought to help potentially on a number of different uh, symptoms like pain, fatigue, nausea, hot flashes, dry mouth, which can happen with uh, radiation therapy, for example. And um, there are a number of studies that look at the benefits of acupuncture during radiation, chemotherapy, um, post-surgical, uh, et cetera. This is actually looking at pain in particular and the use of acupuncture. And we see uh, for the folks that like, again, the data, all of these dots on this side of the line, on the left side of the line, are studies that showed favorable outcomes with acupuncture or acupressure in terms of patients benefiting in terms of surgical pain, joint pain, cancer pain, um, number of studies that support that. 
And so acupuncture is a really important part of um, how we approach patients in innovative oncology. And then we'll spend some time on Ayurveda, which is a traditional practice from India. It looks at the, the, the word literally means Ayur, life, Veda, science or knowledge. So the knowledge of life, the science of life. And so it is a traditional practice from India that uses lifestyle interventions, natural therapies um, to try to bring balance back into the mind, body, being. And then manual therapy or massage therapy can help us reduce cancer-related fatigue, pain, um, mood disturbance, lymphedema. Uh, for those of you who don't know what lymphedema is, it is a collection that can happen if usually uh, if surgically lymph nodes have to be removed, especially from uh, under the arm. And, and massage therapy or manual therapy can actually help with those things. We used to think that maybe we had to avoid it. Um, and often there are adaptations that are made by massage therapists or manual therapists who work in oncology based on what's happening for the patient. Are they going through surgery, treatment? Do they have metastatic disease? Um, so it's important to go uh, work with someone who ideally has some cancer background. So that is a bird's eye view through um, whole systems, mind-body medicine, um, some work around uh, being out in nature. I want to spend these last few minutes before we go to Q&A talking about screening, smoking cessation, herb supplements, and what some of our psycho-oncology colleagues do. So screening. I'm going to spend a, a minute talking through at what age, what gender should people be thinking about uh, various screening guidelines? Um, and this is important because it helps us detect the cancer early. And usually when we detect things early, we can treat them better. Um, the tumors tend to be smaller uh, uh, if versus having waited and being symptomatic and um, potentially not having the same therapeutic interventions available to us. And so early detection really matters. And so here, cervical cancer at age 25 to 65, usually about every five years, there are um, tests that will want to be done. So around age 25 and above, I want um, ideally folks to think about this. Now, age 65 plus, uh, you may not need those tests depending on what prior tests have been done and what those prior tests showed. For colorectal cancer, so cancers of the colon or rectum, around age 45 is when we recommend a visual exam, which may be a sigmoidoscopy or a colonoscopy, basically looking at the colon or rectum. And that's done usually every five to 10 years or a stool-based test every one to three years. Um, after 75, you wanna discuss with your provider if it's appropriate or needed. For breast cancer, age 45 is generally when we start annual mammograms and age 55 plus mammograms about every one to two years. Um, between ages 40 and 44, the recommendations are to discuss with your provider. Prostate cancer, age 50 is when the recommendations are to discuss with your provider. Most of these recommendations are from the American Cancer Society. Um, however, if you're um, 45 and if you are African-American background, or if you have a father, brother who had prostate cancer before the age of 65, you want to discuss with your provider a bit earlier. So at the age of 45, if you have any of those risk factors, you want to discuss it with your physicians. 
lung cancer. This is actually um, some new recommendations that have come out of uh, recent work. And so the American Cancer Society is actually re-looking at their recommendations. Um, but from some other task forces, lung cancer, um, now some of the task forces across the nation have recommended at age 50 to 80, if one is in good health, and if one is a current smoker or quit in the past 15 years, and if one is a 20 plus pack year smoker, which means um, the number of packs you've smoked for the number of years. So one pack a day for 20 years or two packs a day for 10 years, for example. And so if you're in good health and you're a current smoker or recently quit, and you've had a 20 plus year um, pack year smoking history, then you may uh, need to get an annual low dose CT scan. That's part of some of the recommendations. So talk to your physicians about these recommendations that seem like they may um, be valuable for you. Finally, I live in the world of ocular disease, so it is super rare to have um, cancers of the eye, uh, but, but it is a bit more common to have ocular disease. And so for um, folks around age 40, it is a good idea to get a baseline screening and then about every one to two years um, screening after that. Herbs and supplements. Number one, we really want to make sure that patients and providers communicate about what folks might be on or want to be on and what are the pros and cons. There are potential interactions, and here's kind of a list of some of the interactions, but it's really important to look at what a patient's on and what are the kinds of herbs that may be helpful and or hurtful, depending on what therapeutically they're going through. Um, generally, the recommendation from a lot of these national organizations is that it not be used for cancer prevention, or at least the data doesn't show us that it helps for cancer prevention. Um, and we really want to aim to obtain our nutrients from our diet, unless we have a deficiency, in which case your physicians will replete those as needed. In terms of herbs and supplements, we think about quality control, cost, um, and we think about the studies that are out there, and we also know that um, there are some limitations on the studies that are out there. And in oncology, some of the commonly seen supplements are things like vitamin D3, depending on your vitamin levels, calcium, magnesium, which can be depleted as we go through treatment, omega-3s, which are helpful in terms of being anti-inflammatory, medicinal mushrooms. So mushrooms like enoki, shiitake, things that I talked about nutritionally can be eaten. These are mushrooms that are put together in pill form. And some folks will be curious to take those to help with their immune response. Turmeric, curcumin, which is a really common um, herb in Ayurvedic medicine and now quite commonly used um, uh, across the board and probiotics. And these are some resources, again, that you'll have that help to, for you to be able to say, hey, what are the herbs that might make sense for you? What are the pros and cons? And ultimately, um, you'd want to talk with your providers about anything uh, in that realm. Uh, and so finally, to round us out, psycho-oncology, pain management, and sleep clinics. So I wish we could all sleep like these kids on the bottom here. Um, but the cancer journey can often make that difficult. So things like depression, anxiety, fear of recurrence, isolation, stress, et cetera, uh, are common and can really affect our sleep. And so we often work with our psycho-oncology colleagues, as well as our symptom management colleagues and, and colleagues in our sleep clinic to help think about what may help a patient uh, improve their sleep 
um, practices. And there's something called cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, which is really an excellent first line type of treatment. Um, in addition, acupuncture, Tai Chi, yoga, mind body therapies can also help. So we've done our tour. And now I just want to leave you before we start our Q&A with the idea of what you practice grows stronger. So if we do bicep curls, our biceps grow stronger. If we do self-compassion meditations, our compassion towards ourselves and others tends to grow stronger. Um, if we put healthier things into our body, our body tends to grow stronger. So I would love for you to, again, just take a moment if you can close your eyes, close your eyes and um, think about of all the practices that we touched on today, if there was one nugget that you'd like to take one small step, uh, one small practice that you'd like to add in today, tomorrow, next week, what might that be for you? It may be a two minute meditation. It may be a five minute stretch before you go to sleep. It may be choosing berries rather than that slice of apple pie. Um, so just take a moment to think about what that is for you. So I'm going to um, say thank you so much for listening in and I'm going to stop my share so that we can all chat together. I'm going to hand it over to Kathleen. Thank you so much, Kathleen, for leading yeah. us through this part. Thank you for that great presentation. So I'm going to read the question out, um, give a response, and then see um, if Dr. Um, Mishra has something to add. Um, so the first one, which got some um, votes, um, do the antioxidants and tea interfere with chemo treatment? Um, and this is a really, really great question. So I think um, an easy answer is... Through diet, um, the intake of antioxidants is okay with both chemo, radiation, and surgery. Um, the reason is the way that our body processes the intake of antioxidants. When we eat food, it goes through the intestine and the digestive tract. Um, when you, the concern really is when you put antioxidants in supplements um, because the dose can be much higher than what you can actually get in the diet. And then the second reason is there tends to be a drug-drug interaction. So when you use a supplement, an antioxidant supplement, it can sometimes compete with other prescription and cancer treatment medications. So it's more about the supplements than it is through um, the diet. And as a matter of fact, I think there's a lot of usefulness um, with teas. Um, as you're going through cancer, for instance, black tea is really helpful um, when you have diarrhea. And Dr. Um, Nisha, do you have any? Okay, okay, great. <laughs> um, the next question, um, let's see, I wanted to get. Um, so you mentioned that nutrition matters during treatment, example, chemo. However, sometimes oncologists say to eat whatever you want during chemo to make sure you don't lose weight, et cetera. Is the idea to do your best to balance good nutrition during chemo? Um, this is a great question, and this is one that tends to come up a lot. Um, and the first thing is um, just to lay some context about what 
the oncologists are afraid of. And with chemo, some of the common side effects are loss of appetite, nausea and vomiting. Um, and one thing we know in cancer is, wow, um, we just heard about how obesity is a risk factor. Um, you also don't want to be underweight. Um, being underweight comes with a, a whole host of issues. Um, and oftentimes it can actually impact the treatment um, that you could be receiving. So there, there's sort of a sweet spot that you don't want to be underweight and you don't want to be in the obesity category. And it's really easy to figure out where you lie by just going online. You can Google search a body mass index or BMI calculator and sort of see where you are and you don't want to become um, underweight. Um, some other thoughts I had is um, if you're in the middle of treatment and you're losing your appetite, you are vomiting or you're having nausea that is limiting you and you start to lose weight, you absolutely have to do the best you can. Um, as a lot of the audience probably knows, sometimes you get your treatment and you only feel bad for a couple of days. So during that time, do the best you can. It's most important to make sure you're getting fluids and as adequate of nutrition as you can. And then on the days where you're feeling better, then you can go and try to follow the sort of guidelines um, that have been outlined. So absolutely, during chemo, do the best you can. Um, and a lot of this data really comes from preventing cancer. And then once you're you know, in a remission, you know, to follow these guidelines as well. Um, but that's a really great question. Okay, so here's another one that's really great. Um, can you give an example of the types of exercise we should do? In other words, does it matter if we run or do yoga or walk, et cetera? Um, and this is great. And I think that this question came in um, as you were in the middle of your presentation. Um, and then one of the slides right after the question came in was beautiful how you put like the light, the moderate and you know the higher intensity activities. Um, I think what's important to note with exercise is when you're going through active treatment, um, we know it's a tool to reduce fatigue or to, to help to treat the fatigue. So I think one of the big take homes is movement is good, um, but oftentimes you can't be very intense. Um, you might have low blood counts and anemia. Um, and again, just the generalized fatigue from chemo. Um, so gentle movement, such as walking, not worrying about going up a hill or taking steps, um, yoga, Tai Chi, Qigong are also excellent, um, not just because it's movement and stretching, but it incorporates breath. So it's a beautiful way to weave in the mind-body work um, that we just heard about and all the benefits um, so I think light to moderate is probably more attainable when you're in active treatment. Um, and then when you're feeling better into survivorship, then trying to amp it up, regain the lean muscle. Um, so light to moderate, I think, um, during active treatment and anything else that you wanted to add to yeah, that? I'd love to Kathleen. Um, Great. Thank you. so um, both, and, and I really appreciate those questions because yes, Kathleen is totally right. When you are actively going through treatment, uh, everyone's situation is different depending on what the treatment is, what your um, status is, et cetera. So most important is to 
to have those conversations with your healthcare team as to what might be right for you. And Kathleen's right. Um, there is a balancing act here. And uh, that 80-20 rule is, is part of that where some of the time our body is not going to allow us to take part in some of these sort of idealized situations and other days we may be able to. So um, what Kathleen said is correct. Um, many of the studies have looked at all of those different aerobic, yoga, tai chi, qigong, you know, all of that has been studied and the data is clear that all of them help. Um, so whatever works for you is going to be the best. Mm-hmm. That's great. Um, Another question that I often get a lot, um, for the vegetables in our diet, is there a difference, more benefit between eating them as solid items versus in juice or smoothies? Um, so great question. And the answer is it's always better to eat them in solid form. Um, and the reason is that it's the fiber in the fruits and vegetables, um, that is where all the phytonutrients are. It's also where all the pre and probiotics are. So when you eat the whole fruit or vegetable, um, because of the fiber, it goes through our digestive tract at a slower pace. So it doesn't spike the blood sugar, um, which we want to try to avoid. Um, juicing, I think juicing and smoothing, I think of them differently. Um, so some juicers, the old ones, pre-Vitamix, um, you used to sort of like press and all the pulp was left behind. That is just a sugary drink. Um, that isn't as ideal. If you take like a Vitamix or a blender, which is where I think more of smoothies, you're putting the whole fruit and vegetable in, you're pulverizing it. So it's still a sugary um, snack or drink but you still retain all the fiber and the phytonutrients. So if you take that smoothie and you sip it slowly over the course of 35 to 40 minutes, you can kind of mimic what would have happened if you ate the solid food. So always better to eat the solid food, but I always tell um, patients when I meet with them, if the worst thing you're worried about in your diet is drinking a green juice or a green smoothie, you're doing awesome. Um, I still drink green juices. I still have smoothies. So it's not to say that they're bad, um, but to think, oh, I got all of my greens in. I have my kale smoothie in the morning. It's not as ideal as incorporating a wide variety of um, whole foods in their whole form. Anything you want to add to that with the juicing? That's, okay. That's perfect. Okay. We'll see what other questions we can get to. Um, there's one that's, um, it seems a little detailed. I'll try to take a stab at it, um, but I don't know how in depth we can get, but um, for cervical cancer, if the person didn't receive the HPV vaccine and is young, around 25 years old, one, how often should the screening be? And two, is it recommended to receive the HPV vaccine to reduce the risk of cancer at that age um, with concerns around safety and side effects? Um, so uh, this is a complicated question, and I would say to meet with your gynecologist and talk about your own personal history. Um, the frequency of screening probably has to do with prior pap smears, what the results are, um, and I would really defer um, 
on the vaccine based on a personal um, situation. So it's a tough question to generalize um, around the screening for cervical. And um, Dr. Mishra, do you have anything to add on that screening? Okay, great. Um, okay, we'll take a stab at this one. Um, what are your thoughts about intermittent fasting? I personally love this question. Um, I really encourage you to bring it up um, during the nutrition talk as well. And I think this is where um, you're, you might get some varying opinions. Um, so as far as evidence informed, um, there is a very nice study looking at um, 2,500 um, breast cancer survivors, stages one through three, that after they're done with treatment, doing a 13 hour overnight fast um, showed a statistically significant improvement in survival. So 13 hours, whatever time you eat dinner, let's say it's six o'clock at night, that means that you don't eat um, your next meal until 7am. Um, you are allowed to drink fluids. So um, black coffee, teas, water, nothing sugar laced, um, but drinking is actually okay. So that I actually tend to generalize that to all my cancer survivors because I think it's a very, very easy way. Um, it is not a water fast during the day um, and it's not gonna interfere with families and lifestyles. Um, now, a little bit more complicated around chemo. Um, there are some studies, a few, a handful, um, looking at what's called a fasting mimicking diet um, in and around the time of the chemo infusions. Um, I think the data is interesting. Um, I think that more research is needed before anybody could blanketly recommend that to everyone. Absolutely highly recommend that if you are going to try to do this, you need to be working with not just your oncologist, ideally a dietitian or an integrative medicine provider that can closely monitor you. Um, your other comorbidities play into that. So do you have a history of diabetes? Um, if, for example, if you're on insulin contraindicated, what is your weight? How are you doing with chemo? Are you rapidly losing weight because of the fasting? You're in, and if your body mass index is low, you're no longer a candidate. So I would not recommend it without um, direct supervision and guidance. Um, and again, one thing to really emphasize is that um, the research that is, that is out, that is compelling is about a fasting mimicking diet. So this is not a water fast. Um, you are taking in a couple hundred calories a day. Um, and that's why you need the guidance of a dietitian or an integrative medicine provider to making sure that you are still meeting your nutrient needs and you're having your labs um, followed closely. But it's a complicated and challenging question. And I think we're going to learn more about it in, in the years to come. And Dr. Mishra, do you have anything to add on the intermittent fasting in cancer? You know, I'll just add a, a note about that, which is um, we'll hear more about it from Dr. Marshall um, in terms of um, muscle mass and what can happen with um, extended intermittent fasting, like the 16-hour version of it. Um, so there's some concern that in cancer in particular, we can lose muscle mass. And so um, many folks are not a fan of the 16-hour version, as Kathleen, you've just been sharing. Um, and, and the 12-hour version seems to be 
something that's uh, reasonable as we think about the cancer journey. Okay, this is another common question. What about the sugar and fruits? Is that acceptable? Absolutely. Um, so there's a big difference between eating cookies, cakes, and candies and fruit, and the difference is fiber. So the fiber in the fruit, again, slows down the speed at which it moves through the digestive tract. So you do not get those um, blood glucose and insulin spikes that you would um, doing juicing. Um, so for the gut microbiome, um, which we think has a direct impact, not just on our immune function, but on our ability to respond to our cancer treatment, um, eating a fiber rich plant-based diet, which includes fruits, vegetables, whole grains, beans, legumes, um, fiber packed. So don't worry about your fruits. Um, okay. Here's a large question. So can you define obesity? Seems to be some confusion for different ethnic groups. Indeed. Um, glad you mentioned ocular diseases. Well, let me take that first one. Can you define obesity? Um, I'm going to, I'm going to open it up to you as well, but I'm going to take a stab. I, I, I want to recognize that, that, that the fact about looking at different um, races and ethnic groups um, definitely makes things a lot more complicated. I think the simplicity of just looking at a body mass index is not capturing the exact health of, of an individual. It isn't just about um, your body size and the number on the scale. It really has to do with the health going on inside you, which tends to be revealed um, through metrics like blood pressure, heart rate, um, certain lab results, inflammatory markers, um, et cetera. Um, and if you look globally, um, I think an example, um, sumo wrestlers, sumo wrestlers, if you just look at face value, they seem obese, right? We would probably label them obese. They're extraordinarily healthy um, and they're athletes. So um, I think you bring up a very valid point that in medicine, we need to reshape, reconfigure and um, look at how we um, define obesity um, based on other markers, not just um, the weight on the scale. Um, and I'd love to see if you have anything to add to that um, with all the content you shared on obesity. I totally agree. I think that's a, um, there's a real missed opportunity historically in medical research where there hasn't been a lot of diversity in, uh, in our uh, patient populations that have been part of these clinical trials and definitions. And so there is actually a lot of work being looked at. How do we take different ethnicities and different backgrounds and think about what is quote obesity or appropriate health based on that background? Um, so yeah, I think there's more to come in terms of uh, that question. That's a great question. Mm -hmm. um, I think we have time for a few more. Um, so how should we best balance our daily calories from our macros um, during chemo? Um, so I think during the presentation, I believe you had on one slide where there was the, the new plate of food, um, which shows your protein, your vegetables, your whole grains. Um, I think I tend to keep it simple like that. I think when you want to get into um, 
how many grams of protein should I be eating around chemo? That's where I think a referral to a dietitian is best um, because they're going to look at you as an individual and take all the different factors um, as well as how you have been doing on your cancer treatment and give you a, a exact prescription um, for how you should be basing that. Um, but I think like a pretty um, relatively equal distribution of protein, fats, um, and carbs. And to whittle that down, I think a dietitian would, a dietitian referral would be appropriate. So there's another one. Well, there's a comment about red that last read last week that the age requirement for HPV vax has expanded, i.e. extended to greater than age 26, um, years old in women. Um, and yeah, I, I really apologize. I think I've been in the cancer world so long that I just have not been in the prevention world. And I don't know the data on that. Um, and then one last question, um, which I'm not sure I know the answer to. Um, do you have recommendations specifically approaching stem cell production pre-harvesting? I heard that a short stay at high, high altitude could help. Um, so I'm thinking that this has to do with um, stem cell harvest for potentially like a stem cell transplant or a bone marrow transplant. Um, forgive me if that's not what the question um, was asking. Um, and I, I don't know of any data about going to high altitudes, it, um, improving um, the harvest outcome. I've not heard of that, but I don't actually know if there's data for that or not. All right. Thank you all and have a good, good night. Take care. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.